turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and we will get into our notes here in a couple of minutes. You'll notice tonight in your notes, this is going to be one of the rare exceptions where there are not a lot of Bible verses tonight. And so I'm going to try to help you and explain to you a few things. And I kind of, I want you to understand, I've built up to this the past couple weeks. Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that the Word of God is inspired. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means that it is God-breathed, holy men of God. Are you going to spill that purse there? One thing that that shows everyone, Caroline has a heavy purse. Did you see did, did, you, did you see Matthew trying to carry that? They would charge you on an airplane for that purse. They would have to go down below, and it would be a $50 charge for that purse. And I know you got to carry things for the kids and everything else. That was her excuse when they were younger. That was a diaper bag. But now the purse is not much different in size than what the diaper bag was. And now that I've gotten myself in trouble, did you hurt your leg, Matthew? Did you drop it on there and hurt your foot because it's so heavy? No? Okay, good. He was looking at his legs, so I was just making sure. And so, it's a heavy purse anyway. So, that's why Caroline's got all the muscle she does from the heavy purse she lifts back and forth. And so, nope, don't do it. And Russ, Russ, I'm glad to hear you can really hear tonight. It really just thrills my heart that you can actually hear in church now. And so, I was going to share a blessing that Russ can hear, but I don't know if that's quite a blessing all the time, but most of the time it is. And so he's going to start hearing like the word R at all. And he's going to be looking around and make sure no one's talking about him or anything like that. But um, we looked at the fact that the word of God, it is inspired. It is God breathed. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. When the Bible was written, when men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost, God moved through them and gave us his word. And I've mentioned how there's a lot of fallacy out there, even in our Baptist churches, about the Word of God and what is said. I was listening to a message yesterday, and someone was talking about the King James, the translators, and said how that is just as inspired as those that heard the words from God and moved, were moved by God, that the translators were just as inspired and the only Bible version ever to be inspired is the King James Version in 1611. And let me just tell you something tonight. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but this book that I hold in my hand, it is inspired. But it's not inspired because of some men who translated it and God spoke to them. It's inspired because it's preserved. God's preserved his word. I've built a case over the past couple weeks of the fact that God's word, yes, the originals were inspired. And I always heard in college, watch out for the guy that says the originals were inspired, but, but that's the truth. You don't have an original today. There are no originals left. They wear out over time. But it is inspired because God promised to preserve his word. Last week, last Wednesday night, I taught about the preservation of the Bible. If you weren't here, go back and listen to it. And I went at it from a different angle than what most would. I have taught Bible college classes to students on the Word of God. And I would say I am pretty well versed in this topic. If you want to go deeper than what I give you here, you can come talk to me anytime, and I'll break it down what I can from here and explain some more things to you. But last week, what I told you is, you have t basically, and I'm summarizing it, you have two lines. that, And you could say there are more lines if you want to of where texts come from. And people with this text say these people are all corrupt and terrible. And the people on this side say these people are all corrupt and terrible. And so the ones over here don't like this text and they love their text, even though they don't know what edition of their text they're using. We like the received text. I get that, but which one? Which one of Erasmus's works is it that you... There were five different editions of the same thing. For the King James Bible, they used the third edition. So there you go, if you didn't know that there. But then you have those on this other side that look at it, and they're like, well, that line was lost, and all of a sudden they're adding things. To, and you have a bunch of men on both sides of the subject 
adding and making themselves and everything else, blowing it out of the water. And at the end of the day, I trust no man when it comes to these things. Like I, I heard someone, I heard just the other day, they talked about the fact that they're writing a book, but it's not, they didn't do the research. Someone else did their research, and they're writing a book from someone else's research. I'm like, but that person wanted them to, it's almost like this person might have more influence than they thought they could, I don't, I don't understand it all. But what I want you to understand is one man's study is not going to make up my mind about the Word of God. Last week, we looked at tons of verses. And the verses that we looked at settled the fact that God promised to preserve His Word. So you can rest assured today that you have the preserved Word of God. You are okay, all right? But as we go deeper tonight, at some point... Some people had to decide what books were put into the Bible and what were not. But once again, when we go down this topic, what we're saying is, well, man picked what books were in the Bible. No, I've told you before, and I've stressed this point, before the world ever began and forever, God's word is settled. So yes, men might have put their stamp of approval on the 66 books that are here, but before it was ever here, it was settled in heaven that there were 66 books. It was already settled and done. So that's what I'm trying to say. So yeah, you might look tonight and be like, well, men did this. Yes, they did. But they didn't, they did, God didn't need them to do it. But there had to be something that came together because you got to understand, when you have something like the Word of God, the devil does his very best to have a counterfeit for everything that God does. So as you have the gospel being written, the gospels being written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll use those four right there, there were a lot of false gospels being written by people and even being written a couple hundred years after the time that that was written. Now some will say, well, technically Matthew didn't write his book right when Jesus was there. He wrote it after that time. True. That's true. I'm not arguing that fact. But when someone says that here's the gospel of Peter, and it was written 150 years after Peter lived, there's a problem. It doesn't quite add up. But what you got to understand is the devil will do what he can to distort truth and to mess up truth. So when you have the truth out there, there had to come a point, how do we decide what is Scripture? Now, that's what I want you to understand. We don't have to decide what Scripture is. God already settled Scripture. There's no doubt in my mind that you have in your hands the 66 books. This is what God intended you to have. I don't, and I don't think it's because man decided it. I believe before time ever began, you look at Psalm 119. Are you there? And then I'll give you a few more thoughts, and then we'll dive in. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord. Thy word is settled in heaven. Now, that's Old Testament, right? So Hebrew. So do you know that forever in Hebrew literally means forever? You guys just learned a new language tonight. It literally doesn't change. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So even though men did what they did to come up with the scriptures... It doesn't, it doesn't matter. The scriptures were already settled. So don't look tonight and be like, well, these men decided the Bible. Now i got to question everything. You don't have to question anything. God's word's always been settled, and God's going to give you his word. Okay? Are we all on the same page? Okay, and if you're not on the same page with me, you might get there. Maybe when you get to the notes, we'll be on the same page, right? Get it there? So we're going to look at tonight canonization. Now that's a big word. Now I told you, these are big words because we're talking about some doctrinal issues and doctrinal things. So as we dive in tonight, and we're going to look at several things, we're going to understand why some of the why some of the books of the Bible were put into question if they should be in the Bible. You know they question some? We're going to look at why they questioned what books should be in the Bible and what shouldn't be. We'll get there in a little bit. But I want you to understand something. As the Word of God 
was being written down. There were a lot of other religious things being written during that day. And a lot of counterfeits. And you know, you would even hear Paul at different times, watch out for the false doctrine, right? Well, where is a lot of the false doctrine coming from? The false letters that were being sent out. And so as we look at this tonight, there had to be a time, how do you know out of all the books that are out there, how do you know that these 66, or how did they come up with these 66? That's what I want to talk about. Now, this is looking at from man's perspective. Last week when we talked about preservation, we looked at it from God's perspective. It's settled already. He's given us all that we need. But how did man come to conclude the same as God, basically. And so we're going to look at this tonight. Number one, as you look at your outline, canonization is the process of determining which writings measure up as genuine scripture. That's what we're going to look at tonight. And so that's what canonization is. It's the process of determining which writings, the writings that would be scripture, which scriptures measure up as genuine scripture. Now, you think about the word, so you break this word down, can, um, canonization. The word canon comes from the Greek word, a rule, or conveys the idea of a measure. And basically, what standard was set to decide what is Scripture and what is not? That's what this comes down to. So the first time you hear the word canon being applied to the Scripture was by a man by the name of Athenius, and he lived from 296 AD to 373. And this is what he said. You have letter A there. You have the canon of Scripture. It is the rules or standard by which each book in the Bible was measured to determine its admission to the sacred collection. So when we use phrases like this, the canon of Scripture, so this is the rules or standards by which each book of the Bible was measured to determine if it should be a part or not. You also have the phrase used, sacred canon, which would be letter B there. And that is the name given to the collection of books which measured up to the applied rules or standards. So if someone says the canon of Scripture, they're referring to the test for the Scripture. When you have the sacred canon, those are the collection of books that are. Does that make sense? So the, so the sacred canon would be the 66 books here because they measured up. Whereas the canon of Scripture would be the test that was done to see if it would be added. And if that doesn't make sense to you, it's only going to get more confusing from here. So think about it this way. Canonicity is determined by God and discovered by man. I think that's the best way to word that. God is the one who decided what is Scripture and what's not. But man had to discover it. So man did not determine what the Bible is. Because if man determined what the Bible was, then you have a book like every other book that's ever been written. And that's what separates God's Word from every other book is the fact that God's Word is a lie. It's a living book. It's a book that was settled before the world ever began. In heaven, God's Word was already settled. And God inspired, God breathed, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and they penned God's words for us. And God throughout history has preserved His Word, and so the inspiration's intact. So how did we come up with what should be included and what shouldn't be? Well, the first thing God really realized is God's the one who says what's in his book, not men. But men had to discover that, and there had to be something put together. So as we talk about the canonization or the process, what was the process used to decide what was put in the Bible? Well, that gets us to number two, the standard or test of canonicity. What was used? How did they decide? What did they look at for a book to decide if a book would be included in the Bible or not? What was the human test that they did? Well, here we go. Everyone with me? All right, I know it's a Wednesday night. I know it's some of you getting past your bedtime soon and you're tired. Letter A, we see they looked at the writers. That's where it began. They looked at the writers. 
So when it came to the writers, some of the questions or things that they would ask, you know, they would look at, was the writer God's appointed man? Like in the Old Testament, for example, letter number one there, with the Old Testament, was the writer a prophet of God? That's one of the questions that they would ask about the writers. So when we, let's think about the Old Testament for a few minutes. Who wrote, who penned the first five books? Moses. Was Moses a prophet of God? Was he a prophet of God? Yes, he was a prophet of God. Yes, he was. He was definitely a prophet of God. Um, We look at who wrote Jeremiah. Was he a prophet? He's a prophet. Was David a prophet? David was a king, but prophetically he did give some things, didn't he? Am I wrong on that statement? That, we're talking about an apostle would be God called, and we'll talk about that when we get to the New Testament in a second, because God calling someone in the Old Testament is different than Jesus specifically calling his apostles in the New Testament. But one of the questions they would ask, was the writer a prophet of God? That's where it began. And then the New Testament, the question was, was the writer an apostle? That's where it would begin. And you say, well, why, why would it matter if they were an apostle or not? The apostles were eyewitnesses of what took place. The Bible tells us in Luke 1, verse number 2, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now, you could look real interesting here. Was Luke an apostle? No. He was a doctor. He was a physician. He traveled with Paul. But he saw all these things. He was there. Was Mark an apostle? No, he is not. Apostle had to be called directly by Jesus. The last known apostle would have been Paul. And so there are, so we look at, they would look at the writers to begin with. Now, there are some questions that come into play. So, like, let me ask you this question, see if anyone can answer this. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Who said, well, who do you say? Probably Paul. I would agree with that. Do we know for sure it was Paul? No, we don't know. But I would say, looking at the writing style, I would say it's Paul. Now, look at the book of James. Was James written by an apostle? No, James is the half-brother of Jesus. How about Jude? Was Jude written by an apostle? No, so this did not work for every book. You might look at the Old Testament, there were a lot of prophets there, but, you know, at the end of the day, you look at David. David was a king. David had some prophetic statements, but David wasn't technically a prophet. Solomon wasn't technically a prophet. But then Isaiah was a prophet. Daniel prophesied. There's lots of things that we see. So this was one of the tests that came up. It was not an end-all test, but it was one of the tests. Number two, or letter B, we see the content of the book mattered. Content mattered in the books that were looked at. Do the contents, you know, some of the questions that they would ask here is, number one, do they contain life? Do the books, do they, in what they teach, do they contain life? How about this one, number two? Are they life-giving? Man, you like look at the book of John, those are life-giving words that are put there. The book of Romans and the doctrine through Paul, those are life-giving words. They definitely are. Um, Number three, are they edifying? Do they build up God's body instead of tear down? Because there were things that tore down the body of Christ. These were measuring standards that they used. And it's important, and when you look at these things, content matters. Because if you've got the Word of God, it's got to be true, because the truth is what's going to set you free. They have to have the right content, because the Word of God, it's quick, it's powerful, it's sharpening two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing a center of the soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So these things matter. How about letter C? Acceptance. Did the early church accept it as Scripture? That's one of the questions that was asked. And they would look, was there 
widespread acceptance by the body of God's people. But this wasn't an absolute test either. Do you know there was a group of early Christians called the Paulicians? Quite a good name right there, right? The Paulicians. Do you know why they were called the Paulicians? Because all they had were Paul's books, Paul's epistles. They didn't have any other writings. So you say, well, why didn't they have any other writings? I don't know. I wasn't there to ask them. But the Paulicians, all they had was Paul's writings, so they didn't have all of it. But that's another test that was given. Another test would be that of inspiration and authority. And think about this. When we talk about inspiration and authority, some of the questions that they asked at this time, does the book bear the hallmarks of inspiration? Does it have the, you know, does it really have the thus saith the Lord, number two there? Is there a thus saith the Lord quality about it? Is it a bunch of men's writings, or is it what God said? You know, like, I'll give you an example. Remember how Paul one time, he said, the Lord's given me liberty to tell you this? Well, he stepped outside from what God was saying, and he said, I'm adding this here. But that shows that it was the thus saith the Lord quality to what was, to, or quality to what was written. Number three, number three, are the contents authentic? Are they authentic? And then number four, does it have the stamp of divine authority? Well, you've got to understand something is we could look at all these tests all night long and say, well, these standards, how, did, how do you know? How do you not know? You've got to understand something. None of them are conclusive because men cannot conclude and know exactly anything, Right? God's word was given to us, and as we think about this, we could look at several things. So let's think about these four things. We think about the writer, the content, the acceptance, and the inspiration and authority. Let's throw a book out there and see if it meets any of these tests. Throw out the Book of Mormon. Let's use the Book of Mormon for a minute. So, did, so the writer... Did they know Jesus? Oh, he says he did. But the Bible's not of any private interpretation. There's a lot that could be said there. Okay, so let's talk about the second question there. The contents. Do they, are they life-giving? Do they change lives? Does it agree with the Word of God? No. Is it accepted by God's people? It's accepted by a few weirdos out there. Does it have the thing of inspiration and authority on it? I would say no. It doesn't fit any of those things. And who really knows? Did you know that Joseph Smith, when he pinned the Book of Mormon, did it behind the curtain? No one actually saw him write it out. And do you know why they say, he, some people say he did that? And I'm not saying it's true because I wasn't there. But what I've heard is the reason why he wrote it behind a curtain was because he was writing someone, he was plagiarizing and using someone else's book. But it was coming straight from God. It doesn't match. So, as we look at this, I want you to understand, I'm going to give you some big names for a few minutes. And I know I'm giving you a lot of big names and stuff tonight, and I... My prayer earlier today and even tonight and all week long is help me not confuse everybody. My goal is not to confuse you tonight. But I want to look at number three tonight. I want to give you some of the specialized terms used in the discussion of canonization. So canonization is a process. And during that process, many books were revealed to be pretenders and were rejected right away. There were also some books in the Bible that had to be examined deeper before they would include them or not. Now, some of the words that are used, and we'll leave this word up on the screen for you for a little bit. Just put it up there, letter A. Do you see that word there? And so, Ryan, how would you say that right there? Because you're Mr. Language. It's a big word there. 
Homologumena. There you go. So what that means is that it was a kinetical books that were accepted by all. So these books passed all the standards. So when we talk about that and we think about that, Genesis passed the standard. Psalms passed the standard. There were a lot of books that passed the standard. But I want you to, I'm going to talk for a few minutes. There were some books that did not pass all of them and were brought into question that are included in the Bible. And I want to explain to you what the issues were, and I want to teach you why they are Scripture. So letter B, you have this type of books. The anti-legomena. Anti, anti, yeah. You didn't get this pastor because he could use big words. But they say the pastor and the congregation take on the same personality over time, so I don't think you guys use big words like this either. Probably a few of you that really could. And so, but when you look at this word, this one means that there were some of the books, kinetical books, that some disputed. Now when we look at this, why were some of the books disputed? Well, first of all, and we're going to go through, I'm going to list them for you. In the Old Testament, the first book that was disputed was Song of Solomon. Say, well, why was Song of Solomon questioned? I really don't want to get deep into it tonight. But because of the sensual language used in the book, people questioned if it should be in the Bible and if it really was. But when you look at marriage and you look at the purity and sanctity of marriage and you look at the relationship between Christ and his church, it was clear that Song of Solomon should be included and why it was. The second book would be the book of Ecclesiastes. And you say, well, why would anyone question the book of Ecclesiastes? Let me ask you, have you read the book of Ecclesiastes? I totally could see why there could be some questions about some of it. Because, and you say, well, why was, it, why was it disputed by some? Because of the skeptical language in it. This book, and you've got to think about something, it's more, in this book, it's more, the book of Ecclesiastes, the issue was more of interpretation than it meeting the standards. Because this is the thing, the book is written under this viewpoint or standpoint of life under the sun. And then you see, after you realize what life is here on earth, at the very end it goes to explain to us, this is what we're supposed to do. This is the whole duty of man, to fear God and keep his commandments. So if you look at it in perspective and interpretation, it lines up with the Bible, and that's why it's there. Another book that was disputed was the book of Esther. And I mentioned this on Sunday. The issue is why they're like, well, why should Esther not be included? God is not mentioned one time in the book. So there were some that looked at that. Well, God's not mentioned, so why should it be included? How many of you have read the entire book of Esther? If you read the entire book of Esther, and if you haven't, do it this week. I challenge you this week to read the entire book of Esther and look at God's hand move behind the scenes. Though God's name is not mentioned one time, God's providence and his presence is found everywhere in that book. And it should be included. The next book would be the book of Ezekiel. Now, some of the disputing happened because they said some of Moses' law was distorted. Now, if you can really understand the book of Ezekiel, more props to you tonight. Because there are some things that Ezekiel did, it makes no sense whatsoever. And I mentioned a while back, one of my goals pastoring before the Lord has me stop pastoring is to preach through every book of the Bible. I really want to leave Ezekiel till the end. Hoping that the Lord has me stop before we get to that time. But then if I am still preaching then, and maybe my mind's not as clear, like Russ, I mean, if my mind's not as clear, I don't know if I want to be trying to teach the book of the Bible then. But I get why they might question it. But once again, it adds up, and it was added to the Scriptures. Now, 
Did you know the New Testament, there were several books that there were issues with? And I want you to see this. I want you to understand what the issues were. First of all, so we look at the New Testament, it was the book of Hebrews. Say, well, why was the book of Hebrews brought into question? Because no one knows for sure who wrote it. That's the whole thing. What is the theme of the book of Hebrews? I would say the theme, and this is, I'm going to be, this is going to be one of the next books that I preach through. Christ is better. That would be my title for the book of Hebrews. Christ is better than Moses. And he's better than the law. He's better than the angels. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than anyone. But because we weren't sure who wrote it, it was brought into question. Second book be the book of James. Now, this is what I want you to do with me tonight. I want you to take your Bibles with me to James chapter number 2 and Romans chapter number 4. James chapter number 2 and Romans chapter number 4. Now, we'll just say this. The book of Romans is 100% for sure Scripture. Now, if we look at, let's look at James chapter number 2. In James chapter 2, I'm just about there. James 2, look down at verse 17. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Then, instead of looking at Romans chapter 4, go to Romans chapter 1. For therein is the righteousness, verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, what's it written? The just shall live by works, by faith. And yet it says, Faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. And if you were to break it down even more, you look at James chapter number 2, it talks about the fact that Abraham was justified by his faith, by his works. But then in Romans chapter number 4, it says that Abraham was justified by his faith. So they didn't want to include the book of James because they said the fact is it's, it doesn't line up. The problem is, just because our understanding, normally if there's a problem with the Bible, it's never the Bible that's got the problem. The problem is always us. So if you study it out, the book of Romans makes it clear that in God's eyes we are justified by faith. And even Hebrews talks about that. Without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and the reward of them that diligently seek him. Faith is what matters with God. But the book of James is literally, the entire theme of it is practical Christian living. So how to live in this world. So you go out, you live in your neighborhood. Can your neighbors and the people, your coworkers and your people in life, can they see your faith? No. They judge your faith by your works. Oh, they call themselves a Christian. Look at what they do. That's what this world does. Because the world can't see your heart. They see your actions. So is this a contradiction? There's no contradiction here. In God's eyes, we're justified by faith. In man's eyes, we're justified by our works. Um, next letter C, Second Peter was brought up. Now you're going to see on Sunday mornings that we're going to be Diving now into Second Peter. And Second Peter is written a lot different than First Peter is. But there's a couple of reasons for that. And one of the reasons is, did you know that P Peter died shortly after he wrote Second Peter? It was kind of like his farewell. And it is kind of written like a guy that doesn't have much time left. And when you look at it, one of the reasons I believe why it was doubted by some too is, and we're going to talk about this when we go through, 
the fact that there was so much heresy being spread in that day, Second Peter chapter number 2, especially verses 1 through 4, talk about the spread of heresy. And I think the devil would have loved that book not to be included in there, just for the fact of the heresy that it talks about. So the book of Second Peter. How about this one, Second and Third John? And Second and Third John were because they weren't sure that John wrote them. And they were kind of written to certain people and who were these people and how that all play out. But I believe it should be there because God put it there. Then others doubt letter F, the book of Jude, or letter E, the book of Jude. So why was the book of Jude brought into question? Because in the book of Jude, it quotes from the book of Enoch. That's what they disputed. Now go with me to the book of Jude and let's see what it says. You know there was a such thing as the, or there's such thing as the book of Enoch. Anybody ever read the book of Enoch? I've I've read through it. It's strange. But look at the book, look at Jude. And look with me down at So, let me make sure I get the, so it says in verse 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, um, it's interesting. Does the book of Enoch even have that in there? What Enoch said right there? I'll help you out. No, it doesn't. And the book of Enoch probably was written after the book of Jude was written. There's no proof that the book of Enoch was actually here in Enoch's day. It's probably written much later. And we'll talk about all those books in a couple of minutes. And so this is, this is, real, and this is where we see inspiration at its finest. How is Jude going to know what Enoch said if God doesn't tell him? Think on that. Then there are others that said that the book of Revelation shouldn't be included. So why not the why not the book of Revelation? Man, I could give you lots of reasons. I give you lots of reasons why someone want, wouldn't want the book of Revelation in there. I would say one of them. I'll give you one little idea. There's a city that has seven hills. That's called the great the great whore of Babylon and all that, and it's literally Rome. They might not want that included in there because of what it pictures and what it says. You say, do you think that Rome and that is, the Bible says it. The city that sits on seven hills. And you look, and we could say, well, anyways, I'll, I won't go any deeper there. But anyways, there's a lot that could be said there. So you had the books that were accepted by all, and then there were a few books that were not accepted by everyone, which are these that are included in the Bible. But then the question becomes, there are a lot of other books that were written during that time. And I'm going to give you some of those. I'm going to talk about them for a few short minutes. I'm going to talk about, first of all, so letter C, you have the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha, when we talk about the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha, it literally means, you think of the word apocalypse, Apocrypha, it means hidden or concealed. And around 450 A.D., the word came to refer to non-inspired books, especially during the Old Testament period. Now, what I want you to know, and as we look at this, there were many books that were never claimed to be inspired. There might be some history from the day. They might have nothing to do with that day. But when we look at it, the Old and did you know the King James Bible when it was put out? The Apocrypha was there in the middle of it. Do you know the Catholic Church 
uses the Apocrypha. You say, well, why do they use the Apocrypha? I'll tell you in a couple minutes. Don't jump ahead of me here. We'll get there in a minute. But as we, and did you know, it's interesting that even some of, our, of the modern versions out there are starting to bring the Apocrypha back, too. But as we look at the Apocrypha, these, look at the, these are some of the names of the books. The Wisdom of Solomon. That sounds good, right? Or um, Ecclesiasticus. Tobit, 1st Ezra, Ezra's, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Judith, Baruch, Letter of Jeremiah, 2nd Ezra's, Additions to the Book of Esther. That's a good one right there, right? Prayer of Azariah. Who is Azariah? Michael? No, no. So... There were, there were, so it's funny when we go to the book of Daniel that we call Daniel, Daniel. But we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by the names they were given, not their original names, and that's the name of one of the three there. So, and then um, Susanna. Oh, Susanna, I want you to cry. I don't know if that came from that apocryphal book there or not. Bell and the Dragon. That sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? Bell and the Dragon. And then the prayer of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was probably the wickedest king that Israel had. But he did kind of repent at the end. But did you know, so why would you accept these books or not accept them? Did you know, so when we look at the Old Testament that was given to us, it was passed down the Jews. They kept it. They did a good job of preserving it. There is not one Jewish scholar or one Jew that accepted the Apocrypha Scripture. And did you know that the Catholic Church accepts 12 of the Apocrypha books? They take out First and Second Esdras and the Prayer of Manasseh. And you say, well, why do they, why do, they do this? When did this happen? And let me look at my notes, what I gave you towards the end there. Um... Yeah, so um, if you look, and basically the Apocrypha, there was the Council of Trent. The Roman Catholic Church had a, com- had a council in 1546, and they decided to add the Apocrypha as part of their scripture. You say, well, why? Do you know that when we talk about purgatory, is purgatory found in the Bible? No, but it's found in Second Maccabees chapter 12. Um, how about salvation through your almsgiving and giving of things? Do you know where that one comes from? That comes from Ecclesiasticus 3.33. So it fit into their narrative. Now something that's pretty interesting is, did you know that if we're going to look at the Apocrypha, it says that suicide is okay. In 2 Maccabees 14, verse 43 through 46. In Ecclesiasticus, it says that slavery and cruelty are okay. And the wisdom of Solomon, it talks about how reincarnation takes place in the Apocrypha books. There's a reason why those hidden books are not included in the Scripture. And you could also, we could look at the New Testament, there were several. You have the Epistle of Barnabas, the Epistle of Clement. Clement was an early church father. Um, the, that one, yeah. Um, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, the Gospel of the Hebrews, the Epistle of Ignatius, another church father, the Epistle of Corinthians, the Shepherd of Hermas is another one that was mentioned, or is one, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Epistle of the Laodiceans, and then the Epistle of Polycarp, an early church father. And so, as I mentioned, the Apocrypha was canonized by the Catholic Church at that council in 1546. And also, if you really look close, the Council of Trent, you want to study something very interesting, look at what happened at the Council of Trent. The Reformation's happening during this time. And so the Catholic Church was uniting against those that were protesting them. And there's a lot more that could be said there. 
that I'm not going to get into tonight. Now, the last set of books, this one's a fun name. Yeah, Pseudopictographa. Yeah, there we go. I said it close enough. And these would be, so there were some of those spurious books where the Catholic Church accepted some of them as Scripture. That would be the Apocrypha. These are the books that no one accepted. And I'm not going to give you all of them tonight, but I will tell you this. So like, the, so like the New Testament, for example. Do you know there were, um, oh, there were 21 false gospels? The Gospel of Andrew is a book that no one accepted. The Gospel of Barnabas, Matthias, Thomas, Peter, the Gospel of Peter. Do we have technically a Gospel of Peter? Yeah, I believe Mark would be, it would be Peter's Gospel. But all these ones were written as counterfeits in that day. There were 21 of those. There were, um, you know, we talk about the book of Acts. There were eight false acts out there. One to John, Paul, Peter, Andrew, Thomas, Matthias, Philip, and Thaddeus. And what those do, each one of those gives a legendary account of what each of those guys did in their lives. There are false epistles. You know, Paul had all of his epistles. There were four false epistles. And then there were seven false prophetic writings. So think about this, and I'll give you number two first, and I'll go back to number one. So number two underneath this last thing, there were at least 40 books written that were false. We think about the prophetic writings. There were some, there was the revelation of Peter, the revelation of Paul, the revelation of Thomas, the revelation of Stephen. Doesn't that sound like it would be good, the revelation of Stephen? After he preached the message he did before he died, the revelation of Stephen had to be really good. See how those names could confuse some people? You know, and then, you know, we would sometimes call John, John the Revelator, right? He wrote the book of Revelation. There's one, one of the John the Theologian. Go figure. Anyways, then you got in the Old Testament, and the list could go on. And in the Old Testament, there are at least 35. Some of the books that there's no way they are inspired would be, there's a, the book of Adam and Eve. That's an interesting one. Um, the Testament of Abraham, the Apocalypse of Abraham, the Book of Noah, the Testament of Job, the Testament of Solomon, Psalm 151. There was a 151 Psalm. Maccabees the third and the fourth. Um, the magic, the magical books of Moses. Yeah. Now, okay, let's think for a minute, though. Where did Moses live for a long time? Egypt. There's a lot of mystic things, right? So do you see how that name could get you thinking down that road? I would love to, and I haven't read it, but if I could find the, the magic books of Moses, that might be fun to read right there. Yeah, and how he did all those things. There's the revelation of Moses. The Secrets of Enoch. Ooh. So many different ones. And the list could go on and on. Now, this is the thing you've got to remember. In our day and age, people write books, right? But a lot of times their books are tainted by their views. Correct? It's shaped that way. So you can, you can pick up a book pretty quick and see if they lean to the right or left by what they write in the first couple pages or from what channel you buy their book from or whatever the case may be or what bookstore you get their book from, you know. But when you look at all those things, some of these books, they might have been written back in those days. Some were written later on. But the thing is, they are not inspired. They are not God's word. There's a, there's a historian of the day, Josephus. And Josephus' writings you can find today. And Josephus talks about the fact that Jesus lived. But he was a historian of that day. His writings are not inspired. The Bible is completely different than any other book. And yes, we look tonight at a lot of different long names, a lot of different things, but that's how man discovered what should be in the Bible. 
but God already had all figured out before man ever did. And I know every once in a while people come up with the great thing I heard. It was a few years ago, remember? We found the book of Judas Iscariot. Why wasn't that put in the Bible? First off, who wants to read a book by Judas Iscariot? If he had the devil inside of him, you can't tell me that God inspired him to write the book. It didn't happen. And you hear people all, we found the Gospel of Thomas. We found this book. We found this book. Why would God, if he is as powerful as he is, and if he forever settled his word in heaven, and we believe that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, why would he forget to give us a book? You see, I don't trust that men gave us all that we need in the book. If, that, if I was trusting men and what they said, I would be a big skeptic and say they probably messed it up. Because men mess up everything that they do. But since the word of God's forever been settled, I am 110% confident tonight that what I'm supposed to have is right here. And we need nothing else. If anything, you just need to pick this up and read this. And sometimes I'll hear people, well, I would love to read those other books, but you haven't even read the whole Bible yet. So why would you pick up some garbage when you haven't even read the Bible? In all reality, if we're going to be honest here tonight, instead of picking up a newspaper or reading some article online or reading all those things, I would pick up the source of truth and I would read this book first. This book has life in it. This life, this book gives you everything you need for life. Everything. We're going to talk more about that on Sunday. You need nothing else. And yet we don't read it. Oh, how we need to read the Word of God. And tonight might have thrown your mind for a little loop. At the end of the day, before in heaven, God's Word was already settled. Man didn't decide anything. God already had figured out. Men just caught up to God after a little bit of time on what should be here. And, I'm, and at the end of the day, I'm glad that they did. So then that way we don't have all these things in question. But my trust is not in men and what they did. My trust is in God and what he did before man ever did it. Father, I